sometimes it comes as a complaint at other times it's an accusation for some it's merely an excuse but there are those for whom it is a cry of understanding when the words how can I believe in a God who allows evil to happen come from their mouths when they mournfully say why does God allow the innocent to suffer there is an idea afloat in our world today, most particularly for some reason in the more developed nations. Maybe it's because we're less familiar with suffering, and so when we see it, it shocks our sensibilities more. But the idea is that God, if there is a God, and we here in this room certainly believe there is a God, we think people think that if he is he should do away with all evil some hold that idea self-righteously as if they were more decent than god himself for others it seems simply only to make sense that god who is all good and all powerful should put an end to evil and the suffering which it entails but few have really ever thought deeply about what such an act on the part of God would really mean. To them uh, and to the world they inhabit, what would that mean? Their thoughts rarely rise above the level of a complaint or a kind of daydream or a weak wish for. The reality is that God who created everything out of nothing by merely speaking, speaking it into existence is certainly capable of destroying all evil. If it's not irreverent to put it this way, he could do so without breaking a sweat with the mere wave of his hand. Indeed, all creation holds together only by the power of his word. And this same God hates evil. He tells us so numerous times in his word. His very nature is opposed to it. And so one day he will indeed completely destroy it. But if he were to do that now, as it seems some people are insisting that he do, to meet their standards or so that he might prove his existence, then he would have to destroy us and the universe he has created. Because both people and the world itself uh, have been corrupted by the fall, by the sin of humankind. It is sin which is not accounted for in their reckoning. The great majority of people are decent enough when compared to the rest of humanity just as a dingy yellow t-shirt looks white as you're working out in the yard until you hold it against a clean bleached white linen tablecloth put out for company that's when you see it for what it really is you and I are soiled as we are now we are not fit for a great house so though we are not as bad as we could be we are not what we should be. We were created 
to be image bearers of God, but our life, the things we do and the things we say, the things we think, cloak and mar and deface that image. And though that's not what we intend, that is, in fact, what we do. And a moment's genuine reflection over this ought to reveal to our hearts just how enormous and disastrous our fall was. God does hate evil more than we ever have, no matter how bad it might have got for us in this life. And he also has the power to eliminate it quite easily. But God has chosen, he has made the choice to do something harder. He's chosen to save humankind. He has chosen to redeem fallen, sinful, proud, fearful, failing, helpless, arrogant, self-righteous, destructive people to take away our sins and give us life, his life, real life, eternal life. And when we are saved, then and only then will the world come right. God made a real world with real consequences, not a fake world with pretend possibilities. Which means, for example, our relished sin, that thing that we just won't give up is visited upon our children and grandchildren until the third and fourth generations. It is a real world. And it's not just our sin and our children, but all sin affecting all children in this sad world of ours so broken by the fall. And yet God is active in our real in mercy, God limits the consequences of our sins as it pertains to our children and grandchildren. The, such sin will affect our family. It's a real world with real consequences, but the effects of that sin are limited by God. Only three or maybe four generations at the most endure the consequences. But on the other hand, God does not limit the blessings of the righteous, which in his mercy he continues upon a thousand generations. And yet some people would still complain, why didn't God make the world differently? Why does it have to be this way? Of course, they forget that God made the world a paradise. Our sin made it rubble. If God were to decide to fulfill their wishes, to answer their complaint, he would have to destroy this world and start over. He would have to make mankind in such a way that they would never be capable of sin. They could never choose something other than God, the choice that they did, in fact, make in eating, bringing with it all our brokenness. And if God did that, there would be no evil, there would be no sadness in our world. But then there would be no real love either, and therefore no joy. For love, to be loved, has to choose to love. And without love, there can be no joy. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot have a world free from all the potential of evil and a world where creatures can have a real relationship with the living God unless there is that dreadful choice 
the possibility to choose something other than the good, and therefore the possibility of unleashing wickedness which we cannot control. There can be no honest trusting in God, no rejection of evil, no genuine choosing of good. And that is reality. The good thing is God has no plans to redo his work. He does not need to. None of this caught him by surprise. He foresaw it all before he created. He determined to save us, to redeem us, and the universe through us. All of us, every one of us in this room, we've all made the wrong choices. He offers us a chance to turn away from sin, to come to Christ, to make the right choice. That and no other is our world made by our good and powerful God. And it's with those thoughts in mind that I'd like us to turn to our text today. And when we do, we're going to find the Apostle Paul wrestling with those same kinds of thoughts concerning the world of ours and God's work in it. So if you would, again, join me in the book of Romans, chapter 9, this time, verses 1 through 18. Join me in your Bible, or we will have the text up on the screen on either side of me. So chapters 9 through 11 of Romans are some of the most complex and compact writings of the New Testament. Much is shoved into these few chapters. And Paul begins his discourse in what we call verse 1 of chapter 9, but he doesn't conclude until the 38th verse of chapter 11. Now Paul is reasoning to a point, and his thoughts in some respects hang Fire, at least they seem to, until he nears his conclusions. And since we don't generally have five to eight hours for our time on Sunday morning together, I chose to begin in the middle of Paul's discourse uh, as he made his way toward his goal with thoughts which are more easily comprehended. And, and I want to allow those thoughts to uh, speak backward into our text today. At least that's the theory. So let's begin. Paul, as uh, he starts his discourse here, he knows he's about to make a statement which is really rather quite shocking. So before he goes on, before he makes that statement, he establishes a kind of foundation for what he's about to say. He, he assures us that he is both forthright and that he has God's approval in what he is about to say. So in verse 1, he says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. Paul uh, has put what he is about to say on this foundation of truth and honor towards God by using three different parameters. First, he tells us that what he's about to say is the truth. He, he says he's in Christ, which no doubt means that he ought always to speak the truth. Yet I think it means more than that. You see, if you're in Christ, there are certain basic characteristics which accompany it, one of which is a strong desire to speak the truth. 
because I, I'm a Christian, there have been times when I have been driven to admit something I would rather have kept hidden. Being in Christ compels us to speak the truth, though we can, of course, resist it. Paul is speaking the truth. And then in an almost redundant fashion, he assures us that he's not lying. And he does so as a way of emphasizing the veracity of his words. It almost reminds me of when I was a kid, and one of us wanted to assure everyone else that we were telling the truth, and we would say, cross my heart and hope to die. You ever do that when you were young? You remember? That man, we were really telling the truth, and that settled it. Well, pretty much anyway, right? So Paul's emphasizing that what he's about to say is true. And finally, he tells us that the Holy Spirit has confirmed this truth to his conscience. In other words, this is not just Paul's feelings, but something endorsed by the Holy Spirit. The implication here, of course, is that the way Paul is feeling is right. The Holy Spirit has validated it. So Paul continues by telling us something which shouldn't surprise us. He tells us of his great concern for his fellow Jews in verse 2. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now, there's no surprise there. It confirms our understanding of who Paul is and of how Christ has changed his life. And we know from the context of the letter and, and all of which follows that Paul's sorrow and anguish were caused by the Jews' rejection of their Messiah. And then, he makes what seems to be an outrageous statement. And it's more important than you might think. But it sounds outrageous. At least it stops me dead in my tracks. The statement he's been building up to is found in verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul is saying his concern for his countrymen is so great that he could be willing, would be willing to go to hell for eternity if it would change their heart. Cursed and cut off from Christ is the way he put it. And, and if that doesn't make you sit up and take notice, you must already be dead. Now, I read that, and I know I have not arrived. I know that I have a long way to go for Christ to be formed in me. I mean, I love my country, but I just can't imagine that kind of sacrifice. I, I, I might be able to imagine dying but not that. And then I think, I ask myself, is there anything that I would be willing to make that sacrifice for? And with fear and trepidation, I shudder to say this. My family, my children, my wife, my parents, my brother, with them, yes. then maybe for you 
small, weak way, I understand Paul's heart here. As shocking as his feelings are. I thank God uh, we never have to make such a sacrifice. Jesus Christ already has. He was cut off and cursed for those he came to save, and we can add nothing to it. But look at what Paul was willing to do for those he loved. And that question is an education in itself, and it's well worth asking. Now, before we can go any further, we need to understand something here. See, Paul's not just telling us about his heart. He's telling us about God's heart. That's why this is so important. This is an argument from the lesser to the greater, just as when Jesus said to the people, if you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? An argument from the lesser to the greater. If Paul was so concerned for the Jew, and those feelings in his heart were validated by the Holy Spirit, we can't even imagine God's love for them. We can only be amazed at how much greater is his anguish over them as he desires their salvation. And there's one last thing before we move on. I don't want you to miss this point. It was the Jew who had rejected Christ whom Paul, and more importantly, God, agonized over. And everything that follows from that follows from Paul rounds out his thoughts here by telling us about his fellow Jews, picking up our reading in the middle of verse 4. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all forever praised. Amen. In a sense, the Jews had it all, but without Christ, they had nothing. And so Paul and God ached for them. And this failure of the Jews to come to Christ, in spite of all their advantages, was one of the great conundrums of the early church, and it had to be addressed. The question had to be asked and answered. Why had the chosen people failed to come to the Messiah? And yet this is the kind of thing we see at different times and in different ways when we look around us. It's the kind of thing which happens when you live in a real world with real consequences. And it happens in spite of all the opportunities one might have and of all the goodness and power of God. Paul addresses the matter beginning in verse 6 and following. It is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Now, from our Bible history, Uh, We know that Ishmael was Abraham's son by Hagar, born before Isaac, and he was of natural birth. We could even say he was of merely natural birth. 
But Isaac's birth was supernatural. He came by promise. And I want you to understand what we have here. We have what uh, theologians call a type. It's like an example. It's real events which are used to represent other real events but spiritual in reality. Ishmael represents those who expect salvation because they think they are in some way or other entitled to it. They're a member of this or that church, or they have been baptized, or their parents and grandparents are Christians. Ishmael was, after all, a descendant of Abraham, and he thought it was his due. Isaac, on the other hand, represents a supernatural or spiritual birth. That kind of thing doesn't come by ancestry. That comes only by God's promise. Only the children of the uh, born of the promise are God's eternal children. Ishmael, on the basis of natural birth, could not share in the inheritance with Isaac. Yeah, I have to tell you something. It doesn't say anything about the end of his spiritual state. God is using this as an example to teach us about his election, about his choosing. He's not telling us anything about Ishmael's final What he is saying here is that if you really want to belong to God, you have to be a child of the promise. As we read on, we become aware of another important element in becoming one of God's children. Our works cannot help us. Verses 10 through 13. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. And yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purposes and election might stand not by works but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. And again, this is another type. It's another example or illustration. And in spite of what verse 13 says, it tells us nothing about Esau's eternal state. Paul is quoting from the book of Malachi here where Jacob stood for Israel and Esau stands for Edom and Israel was chosen by God to be a tool in his hand to advance his kingdom and Edom was not. Paul's using this example as the text itself says to demonstrate God's purpose in election. And the point he's making here is that belonging to God, being one of his forever people, is not by works. It is by him who calls. Just as it is not by ancestry, it is by the promise. God wants the Jew to come to him. He wants all people to come to him. But we can't rely on our ancestry or any other circumstance of our existence, nor will our works, the good things or the bad things we do, help us to get there. To be one of God's forever people comes by his promise, and it comes by his calling. And at this point in his reasoning, Paul stops and he asks and then he answers a particular question. And and it really is a natural question for a Jew at at this point after hearing all that Paul has said about God's election. Actually, the Gentiles 
Well, they had the same kind of question concerning election, but from a different perspective. The question is, is God unjust? And so we begin reading in verse 14, as Paul writes, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? That's the question that Paul asks and is about to answer. The Gentiles wonder that. Out of all of the people groups in the world, God chose the Jew to be his tool to advance his kingdom in the world. Why? Is that fair? And while the Jew complains, I thought being Abraham's descendant and trying to keep the law was enough, and where are Jews held to such a higher standard? And now you say that is not the way? Is that fair? Paul's countrymen might ask. Paul answers the question, is God unjust? Not at all, he said. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. You know, Paul adds something else that God's choosing does not depend on. It does not depend on our desire or effort, or put it another way, it doesn't depend on us at all. What Paul tells us here is it does depend on God's mercy. God has the right to be merciful to those who he wants to be merciful to. God is indeed just. God shows mercy. God is just. But being one of God's forever people does not depend on our ancestry or any other circumstance. It does not depend on our works. It does not depend on us at all. It does depend on God's promise, his calling, and his mercy. Now, in in just a little while, I'm going to try to put all of this together. But first, I want to note, uh, make note of the next couple of verses. We're not going to be able to spend much time on them. They will, in fact, introduce us to our next section. But they show another aspect of God's work in our world, and I'd like to read them for you. And then I'm going to draw from some of what we have already seen in previous discussions as we comment on them. So in verses 17 and 18, we read this. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on those he wants to have mercy on, and he hardens those whom he wants to harden. Now the difficult part for many people, not for all people, but for many people, is that place where he says that God hardens those he wants to harden. But I want you to notice and I have to make the similar observation as those I've already made. The text does not say God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would be condemned to hell. God hardened an already hard heart so that the world would know his power and majesty. And yes, that is another side of God's intervention in our fallen world. He finds it necessary, sometimes at least, to harden an already hard heart. And having said that, there's a clue to a possible motivation of God here from something that we've already looked at, though it comes later in the text as Paul continues building his case. The last words in 
these three chapters where Paul brings his reasoning to a close. The words just before the doxology tell us, for God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. Now there's a motivation for you. In order to have God's mercy, you need to know you need God's mercy. And God well, as another version says, shut you up to disobedience so he can have mercy on you once you know you need it. Now just think about that for a moment. What might you have to do to a king to get him to see his need? And then in spite of it all, you, the things you might do, he could still resist, couldn't he? Of course he could. And this becomes even clearer when we put it all together. See, we've learned something from this text. God intensely longs for the Jew to come to salvation. Paul himself is only another type showing us what God's heart is like. And by extension, we know he longs for all people to come to him. But we have seen that becoming one of God's forever people doesn't depend on our ancestry. It doesn't depend on our work. It doesn't depend on us at all. It does depend on God's promise and his calling and his mercy and his word. None of them have failed. He has shut all people up to disobedience so he might have mercy on them all, and he will even harden a heart Now, there are two more things we need to mention which bears on all of this before we come to a close. First, we ought to understand that God's word has never failed. He has made uh, his promise, and he offers mercy, and he calls, and still we have to answer. The Jews of Paul's day did not answer. And we saw that in chapter 10, didn't we, when Paul, quoting in the Old Testament again, wrote, but concerning Israel, God says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. He wanted them to come. God's word has not failed. His promise has not failed. His calling had not failed. His mercy had not failed. God persistently reached out to the Israelites and the elect stubbornly refused to come. And that's the second thing we need to notice, how God's choosing of the term election is used. Sometimes it seems as though the elect are the saved, and sometimes it seems as if they are not. Recall that rather stunning statement we've already considered, uh, although Paul hasn't made it yet from the perspective of his reasoning. But remember, when he wrote about the Jew under inspiration of the Spirit, as far as the gospel is concerned, they're enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they're loved on account of the patriarchs for God's gift and his calls are irrevocable. They were the elect, but they weren't saved. Which leads us, I think, to understand that Israel itself is a kind of type. It it represents to us a larger reality. God loved Israel, and he chose it. He elected that nation. But it is by the promise and the calling and the mercy and his word that a Jew becomes one of God's forever people. When he or she knows their disobedience, recognizing their sin and 
answers God's persistent call, receiving his offer of mercy. The chosen then become the chosen. The larger picture which Israel represents is God's choice of the world when he sent his son. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. He, he made his promise, come to Jesus and you'll be saved. He's calling even now. He offers mercy and his word is true and it has never failed. Your heritage can't save you. Your works can't. It doesn't depend on you at all. God made a choice. He chose you. And now it's your choice. You have to respond. We'll go on resisting. If you haven't already. But be warned. The opportunity will not remain forever. God is at work in our world, drawing people to himself. And while that process of redemption is going on, while God is drawing people to the cross and treating them to come, God endures a lot of evils so he can save. And the world he made is a real world with real consequences, and so as God works, we too must there's one thing we must never forget. It's not what you may think, that we ought not to complain because the evil in our world is a result of humankind's sin. That is true. Well, that's not the most important truth. There's a far more important truth than that. For all of the evil that has afflicted humankind, even those we call innocent, God has seen to it that the worst of it fell on himself. And he overcame it. The reign of evil will come to an end. It was dealt a death
until they come to you for mercy. Until they find real life.